Hello and welcome to Peace, the podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Peace, a United Methodist community in Shoreview, Minnesota. I'm Jason Steffenhagen, the lead pastor. And each episode will typically start with a sacred story reading coming from the Holy Scriptures, followed by the message that was given during our Sunday morning worship time. Any announcements for our community will come at the end of each episode, so stick around. If you are curious about learning more about Peace United Methodist Community, you can go to peaceumc.com. Again, that's peaceumc.com. If you would like to find more episodes, you can find them on our website or go to our show page, which is peacethepodcast.podbean.com. Once again, that's peacethepodcast.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, We hope that you enjoy this episode. Please like, rate, review, subscribe. And now, on to the Sacred Story reading. So we're in the middle of a series. We're in part two of a series on the Lord's Prayer. We're calling it The Prayer. And I wanted to read you a couple of passages of scripture, a few from Proverbs and a few from the book of Isaiah that have to do with this idea of the name of God being a significant thing. And so here are a few passages. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Two things I ask of you, do not deny them, do not deny them to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that I have, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. From the book of Isaiah 26. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but we acknowledge your name alone. For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I will dwell in the high and holy places and also with those who are contrite and humble in spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite. So as I was thinking about how I wanted to start this sermon, because we're going to be focusing on the phrase, holy is your name. That's the next part of the prayer that we've been studying. I thought about telling you a few of the kind of normal things like from the past where it was like, you know, don't dishonor the family name and have a story about that. You know, there's a funny story from my own past about my name, Jason Steffenhagen. I was trying to find an orthodontist when I was younger and my mom made an appointment at some orthodontist a little ways away. And so she called the morning of just to confirm the appointment that we were on our way, that it was our first time coming, that they were ready for us. And the person at the orthodontist said, well, I'm sorry, you canceled that appointment. My mom's like, no, I didn't. And she said, well, yeah, you call, we called you to confirm last week, and you said that you didn't need the appointment, and so we took it off the books. She's like, I never got a phone call, and I would have not said that because we're planning to come. And, she go, and my mom goes, wait, what address do you have? And the person starts reading an address. She goes, oh, that's the other Jason Steffenhagen, who also happens to be 13 years old and lives in Minnesota. Yes, that is our fifth cousin. And they're the same age. They both live in Minnesota and they have the exact same name. 
And so there's another Jason Steffenhagen floating out there. And every once in a while, I Google my name to make sure that he hasn't done anything stupid to make us look bad. And I hope that I'm doing the same for him. So anyway, um, but what I really wanted to start with, what I thought was an impactful thing to, to, to reflect on for a moment, when we think about this idea of a name and what a name carries, is I wanted to read to you one of the most famous things ever written down. And it's kind of a cheesy way to start, but also it's really beautiful. And I think you'll all understand where we're going. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Shall I hear more, or shall I speak at this, said Romeo? Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague, if nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man? Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose, be any other name, would smell as sweet. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called. Retain that dear perfection which he owes without that title. Romeo, doff thy name, and for that name which is no part of thee, take all myself. I take thee at thy word. Call me but love, and I'll be new baptized. Henceforth, I never will be Romeo. I honestly just love that. I know it's cheesy, but I love it so much. I love it so much because it's this tension of where do you identify? What name are you going to live under? Are you going to live under the name of love? Are you going to live under the name of commitment? Are you going to live under the name of passion and desire? Are you going to live under the name of, of true love and this everlasting hope for what it can mean for you? Or are you going to live under the name of something that's hurtful and persecuting and oppressive, as the name Montague was, as the name Capulet was. Like, what name are you going to live by? And I think it's so beautiful that Shakespeare puts in this religious language that I will be new baptized, that I will take on this new name if you but swear your love to me. There's something so powerful about a name. We've kind of lost that as the generations go on and, and we get kind of lost in the social media world and we kind of get lost in a name meaning something. But it really, really does. And so we're going to look at that. What does it mean to be people who follow this prayer, who follow this God, who has a specific name, who has an identity? And what does it mean for us to live into that identity? So if you weren't with us last week, we talked about the Our Father in Heaven, that initial line of the Lord's Prayer, and we broke it down. What could that be meaning? And so I wanted to read you the idea that I ended with, and it's to the one in whom we belong and who makes us family. That's what it means when Jesus is calling God Father in this moment, is that it's not simply about a male figurehead of the family, but it's the one in whom we belong, the one who identifies us as offspring, as family, as part of this community, the source, the divine parent who runs the household, who runs this place from a posture of wholeness and shalom. And that's where that heaven piece comes from. The heaven idea is the place of wholeness, a place of shalom where everything is put right, where everything is moving towards wholeness, that we embrace the brokenness, we embrace all of the hardship, and we say it's moving towards something better. We don't deny it, we don't push it away, we don't wish it away, but instead we move through it so that we can move towards wholeness and shalom. 
to the one in whom we belong and who makes us family, the source and divine parent who runs the house from a posture of wholeness and shalom. Holy is your name. Holy is your name. Now, this idea of being holy is a little bit of a tricky one. When I grew up, it was this kind of call to like, don't make a mistake. Don't ever make a mistake. Don't swear. Don't disobey your parents. Don't do anything out of line because then you're going to miss the mark. Then you're going to be off the track. Then you're going to be away from what God wants and you are no longer going to be a part of the cool kids club at youth group. You need to be perfect. That's what it means to be holy. The, the literal translation of it is to be set apart. That, that what holy means is that you are set apart from something else, that there's something over here and you need to be set apart from that thing. Well, when I was being brought up and when I was kind of trying to understand what does it mean to be set apart, and I think some versions of Christianity kind of have this to, to the max, is that there becomes this hierarchy there becomes a better than. Like we're set apart, different from so-and-so, different from this group, different from that group. We're better than. We have the best translation. We have the best theology. We have the best understanding. We are better than. We're above. We're, we're smarter. We've got it figured out. God has spoken directly to us. And so this idea of being holy, this idea of being set apart became this kind of competition, even within Christianity, about who was more right than the other, who baptized the right way, right? Who took communion the right way? How do we do this Christian thing the right way? And if you aren't doing it the way we do it, well, that's just because you're not as good as us. We're better than you and you need to be more like us. That's often how this idea of being holy, this idea of being set apart, has been used. And it creates, as you can imagine, a barrier between people, even people that would call themselves part of the same family, part of the same collective, part of the same community, where we're trying to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, but we create hierarchy within ourselves. What I want to put out there as a different way of understanding this idea of set apart is that it simply is meant to be distinguishable. Simply meant to be different. Not different in I'm better than you. Not distinguishable in I'm at the higher point than you. I'm further along in my faith journey than you are. Like none of that messy hierarchical stuff, none of that, that maturity stuff, none of that whole idea of who's better than who, but instead it's I'm operating on this planet differently. Not better than, differently. You can distinguish what we're up to here, aside from someone else. It's meant to be distinguishable. We should be distinguishable. We should stand out, not in a way that says, we've got it all together and you don't. Actually, quite the opposite. We're distinguishable because we own the mess that we have. We own the mess that we've made. There's a story that Donald Miller tells in his book, Blue Like Jazz, where he and some friends are trying to start some 
kind of Christian ministry at Reed College. And Reed College was at the time known as one of the, the most liberal, the most anti-Christian campuses in the, in the country, in the world even. And they had nothing to do with Christianity. They started this Christian club and after six months they had one member um, that was a student. And it wasn't going well. And so at the end of the semester, the end of the term, there's this big party that goes on and all the people are taking their finals and they're finishing up. And then there's this big kind of rager going on on campus and people are just doing all kinds of things that, you know, people that would maybe call themselves Christian would be like, ooh, that's a little much. Um, but it's just happening on campus. And Don Miller and his group of people thought, you know, I got an idea about what we could do. Let's set up a confession booth on campus. And they were like, what? Why would we do that? That's so mean. Like, all these students, all these students who don't like Christianity, and now we're going to put a confession booth in the middle of their big party where they're doing a whole bunch of things that are maybe seen as inappropriate. And they're like, yeah, but we got an idea about it. So they set up this confession booth, and they put it right in the middle of campus where there's this whole big party going on. And when people would stumble into the confession booth, and they would, they would actually think it was this kind of big joke. And they would say, what am I supposed to do now that I'm here? Confess all my sins that I've gotten done doing in the last week, the last few hours, the last, you know, semester. And they say, no, actually, we're here to confess to you. We're not better than you. We want to apologize for the Crusades. We want to apologize for the Inquisition. We want to apologize for white supremacy. We want to apologize for the ways that we've judged and hurt and marginalized and oppressed people all in the name of Jesus. We're really, really sorry we did that. We shouldn't have. There's no hierarchy. There's no better than. They're simply distinguishable. They're simply showing up a little different. What would it mean for us to not see ourselves as better than others? Because we wear this title Christian. We wear this title, I'm a member of peace. We wear this title, follower of Jesus. But instead, what we did with our lives was distinguishable. In the book of Exodus, Moses goes up to the mountain and God gives Moses these 10 commandments, these 10 ways of being in relationship. And one of them goes like this, you shall not make, uh, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses the Lord's name. What is going on? Why is it so important? I remember when I was taught this growing up, I was always taught, you know, do not use G-O-D as a swear word. Or like when you, when you hammer your thumb, you can't be like, oh God, because like, it would be like really wrong and you'd violate this commandment. And so that was how I was taught about this. Like don't swear, don't use God's name in vain. Like that's what's being gotten at here. But that's not really what's meant by this commandment. This commandment, is actually a recognition that you're a part of the family. You're a part of the family, and what you do in the world represents the family. And so if you go around and you do things that hurt people, that oppress people, if you do things that are going to marginalize, if you do things that are going to cause pain, then people are going to look and say, well, what family are you a part of? Well, I'm a part of God's family. Well, maybe I don't want anything to do with that God. Maybe I don't want anything to do with that family. And so when we start talking about the name of God, as we read in the book of Proverbs, as we read in the book of Isaiah, there is something being said about the family that we belong to. So when we hear this idea of holy is your name, holy is the name of God, we're talking about those who belong to your family. Because it seems on the surface that this verse, that this line is about who? 
holy is your name. Who do we think this is about? God. We think this is specifically and only about God. But it's not simply and only about God. Yes, it is. God's name is holy, that God is the set-apart one. God is distinguishable. God is different. God is the unique one that is going about things in a different way. But this is also about us because that's our name. Holy should be our name. If we are a part of this family, the hour of this prayer, our father, our divine parent, our source, we're a part of this family. We're invited in. This name is our name too. This idea of being a part of this and carrying it forward and being set apart, I think there's no better example of how it can go wrong in scripture than in the idea of the kingship of Israel. So I'm going to get nerdy for a second, okay? This is the really nerdy part of the sermon. So in the early parts of the book of Samuel, Samuel comes on the scene, and he's a judge of Israel, and he's a prophet of Israel, and he's also a priest. Samuel wears three different hats, prophet, priest, and judge. And at different times, he's wearing different hats. And then he's getting older in his years, and he's got a few sons that are supposed to follow after him and be leaders and be judges and priests of Israel, and they're not following in his footsteps. And so the people come to Samuel, and they say, Samuel, you've done a really good job, but you're getting old. And your sons that are supposed to take up your mantle of leadership are not following God and they're not good people and we don't want to follow them. So what we want instead is we want a king. And so Samuel goes, oh, you don't want a king. You really don't. A king is just going to enslave some of you. A king is just going to take some of you and make you be in an army that you don't want to be in. A king is just going to take all your resources and build a big palace for himself. You don't really want a king. And the people are like, no, 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 we want a king. It's about time. We've been wandering around in this promised land. We've been having all these separate tribes, and we've been trying to hold it together. But what we really need is a king to lead us. We need a centralized location for a king to operate in. We need a king. And Samuel goes, I'm warning you. And he goes to God and says, God, what should I do? And God says, give him a king. And then if you look back into the book of Deuteronomy, way before all of this transpired, God actually knew this was coming. So God told Moses way before they were in the promised land, when they're still wandering in the desert, God says to Moses, when the people desire a king, this is what, they should, this is what you should give them. It should be an Israelite. The king should not acquire many horses, should not acquire many wives, should not acquire large amounts of wealth. The king should write a copy of the law and read it daily. And the king should not see himself above anyone else in the community. There shouldn't be a hierarchy between the king and anyone else. The king is just there to understand the law, understand the way things operate, and to be the mouthpiece of the Lord, to be the Lord's servant, and to serve the people. So sometimes we look at this list and we go, okay, I don't quite understand all of this. Like I get the whole idea of maybe not having large amounts of wealth. I get the whole idea of writing down a copy of the law so they understand it better. I get the idea of not seeing yourself above others. But the whole wives thing, like, yes, way, way back in the day, having multiple wives was a thing. And also, it was a way of making political alliances. You would marry someone from a different country in order to make an alliance with that person so you could protect yourself. And what God is saying here is don't make an alliance with someone that I haven't told you to just because it's politically savvy. Be careful. 
And then why not the horses? I mean, we all like horses. They're beautiful creatures. Why wouldn't you want some if you could have some? I would want some. If anyone has horses to give away and wants to pay for them to be, you know, taken care of, like, please feel free to do that in my name. I would be happy to go ride them once in a while. Why, why wouldn't the king want many horses? Because this is how you won battles. Horses won battles. So if you wanted to raise up an army and conquer your enemy, and you wanted to be the mighty one, you wanted to be the leader, you wanted to be the strong one, you did it through acquiring horses. Horses carried chariots. Chariots were the tanks of their day, and they won battles. God is saying, I'll fight your battles for you. I'll go before you. I will prepare the way. You don't need to do this on your own. So don't acquire many horses. Don't make political alliances through marriage. Don't acquire large amounts of wealth because then you're just going to spend it on yourself and not on other people. And then write a copy of the law, read it daily, make sure this is a part of you, and then don't see yourself above anybody else. That's what a king should be. There were three kings in Israel before they got split into two communities. This is what happened. They checked the first box and nothing else. None of the kings checked any other boxes. They all acquired large amounts of horses. They all married multiple people. They all had an immense amount of wealth. They did not read and then study daily the law for themselves. And they definitely saw themselves above everyone else. Why do I share that with you? Because they wanted to be set apart in a better than hierarchical way. They wanted to be seen on top. And they wanted Israel to be seen as on top. They wanted to be better than. They thought that's what it meant to be holy. They thought that's what it meant to be set apart. And they did it in the name of God. And it started to fracture what that name meant to the point in which God said, okay, and through the prophets, God said, we got to stop this. They are not, they are not living by my name. They are not loving the poor. They are not loving the oppressed. They are not helping anyone. They're consolidating power and then using their power to hurt other people. Now here's the kicker. I wonder, just speculating, how often the Christian church does these things today. How often do we align ourselves with places of power so that we can be better than, so that we can have the upper hand, so that we can make the decisions, so that we can enact laws and positions and policies that work only for us, but maybe not for everyone else. How often do we defame the name? How often do we take it in vain because we aren't willing to humbly see ourselves as no better than, no higher than anyone else, but instead are willing to show up as love to be called by a new name. How often are we willing to say, holy is your name, because that's my name too. So here's how the prayer could be written for us now. To the one in whom we belong and who makes us family, the source and divine parent who runs the house from a posture of wholeness and shalom, may your distinguishable character and your actions infused with justice and mercy be made known through those in your family. To be continued again. Let's pray. God, whose name is holy, may we identify with that name. May that name be our name. 
May we be known by that love, by that justice, by that mercy, by that character. May we be examples of it. When people see us, may they see Christ. May they see something different and distinguishable. Help us not to fall into the trap that has so often plagued humanity. But we use this beautiful faith. We use this beautiful calling for our own ends. God, help us to give it away. Help us to give it away for the betterment of all those around us. May we put it to good use so that your name is holy. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So a couple quick announcements before we dive in and get rolling. Um, Some of you were here last week or have seen the Tuesday news. We have a church conference coming up. This is happening next Sunday right after the service. We're going to be talking about the budget and then taking a vote on the budget. And so we will make sure to have copies of that for you available on that Sunday so you can take a look at it. We'll have like a side-by-side comparison of 2023 and 2024 so that way you have something to kind of have a reference point. Um, Coming up on the 21st as well at 5 o'clock, we have family game night. And then the highlight of family game night is actually that Pam is going to be teaching us how to make lefsa. And so that should be a really fun evening. That's from 5 to 7. Bring a dish to share. Bring a friend. Bring a neighbor. Bring a kid. Whatever. Find someone. Just bring them along. Feed them. We'll have a good time. It should be really nice. And then after we get done with family game night, not only do we have encore for the middle school and high school students, but then we're going to kind of kick off our book study for the adults. We haven't decided on a book yet. And so we want you to come with ideas. I know Dave said he's got an idea. I've got an idea. I wonder what you have. And so please come uh, to the family game night and then stick around for the book discussion so we can talk through the different options for our kind of Lenten slash spring reading for the year. And then finally, the Life Group is doing a Valentine's Tea on Friday, February 2nd at 2 p.m. This will take place in the Fellowship Hall. It's going to be an old-fashioned sing-along. Uh, so Sue's going to be there, and they're going to pull out. They're going to pick out some fun love songs and just kind of have a sing-along, as well as some some treats to share. And so it should be a really nice time. Make sure that you keep your eye on the Tuesday news for more information. One of the key components of this is that there's going to be an invitation to bring gifts um, for the residents of Emma Norton. And so uh, make sure to take a look at future announcements about this so that you know how to participate. But it should be a really, really fun time. And then finally, um, as you saw in the emails this week, uh, we're kind of kickstarting or kind of invigorating the care team. And so we have lots of different options for people to get involved. We need coordinators. We need people that are just ready to do things. And so make sure that you find Kita and talk to Kita about ways that you can get involved in the care ministry. We have a lot of people in our community that that can use care and you never know when it might be you. And so we want to be able to give to those in our that are in need in our community and help one another out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Peace, the podcast. If you would like to learn more about our community, go to peaceumc.com. Again, that's peaceumc.com. For more episodes of this podcast, you can go to our website or go to the show page, peacethepodcast.podbean.com. Again, peacethepodcast.podbean.com. May you experience the love of God and may you have 
peace.